of you are ready to go through 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tonight. Amen. All right. Let's go ahead and we're going to look at the Lord's coming and stabilizing truth. Before you're seated, we're going to pray. But how many of you know that the Lord is coming? That's what 1 Thessalonians is all about. 1 Thessalonians theme in every chapter is going to mention the Lord is coming back. And so let's pray tonight. Father, we just thank you for the word of the living God. It is your breathed out word, Lord, and we are hungry for it. We want that manna from heaven. We want to feed our spirits and feed our faith and grow in faith and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now speak to us tonight, Lord. Will you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me out of this word? I receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Thank you so much. And let me go ahead and put this up here. The Lord's coming is a stabilizing truth. It'll stabilize you. Now last time we looked at Paul's crown of rejoicing at Christ's return. And what was his crown of rejoicing? It was the people he had led to Christ and nurtured in the faith. Can I tell you something about me? I get richer every day. I get more and more wealthy every day. You say, really? Well, where are you getting all this money? I say, it's not money. I get richer every day. I get in the Word every morning, I get richer. I win more people to Jesus, I get richer. Our church grows. I get richer, that is, if we can go back to that, I get richer by those that are being nurtured in the faith because that's something that can never be taken away from you. And so Paul says, um, I'm rejoicing when Jesus returns because of you, Thessalonians, because you are my epistle written on the hearts of men. Now, Uh, Now, this time, we're going to look first at Paul's concern for the Thessalonians' well-being, how much he cared about them. Now, chapter 3, verse 1, let's read it together. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. We're going through chapter 3 tonight, not chapter 4. I've already done next week's, so I was thinking ahead. But this is chapter 3. Now, here's the scenario. First, we have a place, and the place is Athens. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians from Athens. Now, it would appear that Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica from Athens. Meanwhile, what Paul witnessed in Athens disgusted him. Now, before we go into that, why did he send Timothy back? He wanted to be sure that the Thessalonians were walking with God, and he was very concerned about it. Why? Because he loved them. He loved them. And they didn't have mail. They didn't have blackberries, strawberries, blueberries. They didn't have any iPhones or iPads like I was given Sunday night, which I have already had a hard time tearing myself away from because it's so incredible. But uh, they didn't have any of that. The best they had was to send a letter and you didn't know exactly when. There was no post office. There was no phone you picked up and called. All the time in those days, you were having to wait and trust God and listen real closely to the Holy Spirit to tell you things about the people you were concerned about because you had no way of knowing how they were doing unless you went to them yourself or sent somebody to them. 
on your behalf. So, so Paul was kicked out of Thessalonica. If you'll remember, he was driven out. He goes to Athens and he becomes very concerned about this young baby church, the Thessalonians. He knows they're under the gun. He knows they're being persecuted. He knows the heat of criticism is on them. And uh, his concern is, I want to be sure, oh, I wish I knew. I wish I had some way of knowing whether you're weathering this storm and growing in your faith and standing up victoriously under this heat of persecution. So he said, I'm going to send Timothy. So he sent Timothy to check on them. Now, in the meantime, he stays in Athens. And what he saw in Athens disgusted him. Because idols were everywhere. Dedicated to every conceivable kind of God, idolatry was a total part of the Greek culture. The residue of the ancient Greek culture with all of its mythology, superstitions, appeasement of false gods, and runaway sensuality saturated that old city. And Paul was there alone. He didn't have anybody with him. He was there by himself. Of course, he had Jesus. That's good enough, but there wasn't anybody else with him. Now, out of his concern for the Thessalonians, he had chosen to stay there alone. He likely never felt lonelier than there. How many of you have ever been in a foreign country alone? Anybody ever been there alone? There's nothing, there's no feeling like it, especially if you don't speak their language. You you don't know anybody. You don't know where anything is. You're just in this place where, where, where no one that you can talk to, there's nobody that you can call up or go visit. You're just by yourself and you don't know what to do. And it's this sense of loneliness, very unlike being stuck in Texas or New York, although New York is also like a foreign country. I got hung up in an airport there one time and it was, boy, did I want to get home. But crowds were milling around, but Paul was alone. He sent Timothy away. Now, uh, so Paul did have one friend though, and I know this feeling as well. The friend he'd met so many years before on the Damascus Road, the friend with a capital F. He had that friend. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Did you know the Bible, at one time Paul wrote and said, the fellowship, the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That he would talk to you. That he would minister to you, give you peace, walk with you. The parakletos, the one called alongside you to be with you, to counsel you, to advise you, to encourage you, to strengthen you. He had that friend in Athens. No doubt, he and that friend had a lot of talks while he sat there in Athens. Now, it's worth considering that Paul was willing to suffer this kind of loneliness because he was so concerned for the Thessalonians. So there was the place, Athens, when we open chapter 3. Next, there's the plan. There's a plan. Look at verse 2. And I have sent Timothy. Here's the plan. Our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to do what, everybody? To establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. I believe in divine assignments. I believe that I have a divine assignment right now in my life. have had since I was 18. And I believe everyone in here, no matter what you do, 
has a divine assignment. And those assignments can change year to year, day to day, month to month. But there is an assignment God gives his people. Now, Timothy was given a divine assignment. Paul put his hand on him and said, son, in the faith, go and check them out. And when you get there, I want you to establish them. And I want you to encourage them because those are my spiritual children. And Timothy, I'm trusting you. They kicked me out, but they didn't kick you out. So you're going on my behalf. Now, in the book of Acts and elsewhere, we always seem to be bumping into Timothy. He was one of Paul's converts, and it was a young man who Paul not only loved as a son, but also in whom he had the most implicit confidence. Timothy wound up being a pastor, and tradition tells us that he was martyred one day for his faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul trusted him, trusted him implicitly. He sent him to Thessalonica, then he sent him to Corinth, then he sent him to Philippi. He was always sending Timothy somewhere. Why? Because he knew Timothy will represent me faithfully. He will not misrepresent who I am, the message I'm sending him with. I can trust him to be me in my stead. Do you know how valuable that is today? Do you know the Bible talks about sending somebody who is unfaithful on your behalf, using somebody who ends up being unfaithful, and they're like a broken tooth? You ever tried eating with a broken tooth or a bone out of joint when you send somebody unfaithful? I personally believe that what God's looking for in the church today is people who can be trusted. Trusted. Trusted with information. Trusted to do something they've been asked to do without injecting their own bias or their own will into it. Somebody who can be a faithful servant. Somebody who can be trusted on a mission to represent Jesus Christ. Do you know that every one of us, God is looking at each of us as those he has trusted to represent him in this world? You're the only Jesus some people are ever going to see. Isn't that a scary thought? You're the only Jesus. Those people at your job who know you're a Christian, they're watching you. And, and you may be the only Jesus they ever see. As far, as far as God's concerned, you're Jesus with skin on him to them. They're watching you. Paul said in another place, as a matter of fact, we're going to read it right here. He said in Philippians 2.20, look what he bragged on. Look what he said about Timothy. I have no one, not one like him. No one of so kindred a spirit who will be so genuinely interested in your welfare and devoted to your interests. I don't have anybody that cares about you naturally like I do other than Timothy. Now, how many people did Paul know? Think about that. He knew not hundreds, he knew thousands. And what did he say? I've got no one that cares about you naturally like Timothy. Out of all those people, Timothy shines. I want to be a Timothy for the Lord. I want to be a Timothy. I want the Lord to be able to say, I've got nobody. I've got nobody. I'm competing with you. I've got nobody who I can trust to take my message more than Jeff. If you want to get in the race with me, come on. I've got nobody. I want God to be able to say about turning point. I've got 
No other church that is... Now, I, I love all churches, and I don't really mean this in a competitive sense. But I want him to be able to say, that turning point is really special to me because I know I can trust them to take the message and not dilute it, pollute it, undermine it, marginalize it, dilute it or anything like that, who will faithfully take my word to the world. We're taking the word to the world. We're starting here and, we're, and this is going to be blessed and then we're going to take the word. Today, we got an invitation to go on in the Philippines on radio for next to nothing and we're going to do it in the Philippines. And do you know, do you know, uh, there's a heavy Muslim community there and it's a, it's a new radio station with a, with a very strong outreach and it's the only Christian station in the whole region and we're going to go on it. And, and, and I want God to be able to say, I trust Turning Point to take my word faithfully to the world. You want to go with me? I said, you want to go with me? Because we're going to do it. You and me together, we're going to take it to the world. And so somebody's going to be walking around in the Philippines someday real soon. is going to hear something from this church and be saved from all the way in Fort Worth. It's going to happen. Now, so Paul said, I don't have anybody else like Timothy. I implicitly trust him. So I send him here, there, and yonder. I send him everywhere because I know he'll represent me. I know he'll be true to the message. Now, the plan of Paul was simple, that Timothy would establish the Thessalonian believers. Now, that word establish is very powerful. It comes from a Greek word, and you'll know it, sterizo. What do you think we get from sterizo? Steroids. And what do steroids do? They make you strong. He said, I want you to go, Timothy, and sterizo them. I want you to make them strong. Set fast is another meaning, or to fix firmly. Powerful word. And this is God's call to every one of us with our brethren. God wants us to make each other strong. He wants us to strengthen each other. An illustration of this is found in the story of Israel's war with Amalek in Exodus 17, one of the great stories of the Old Testament. Remember that? Joshua was down in the valley in the thick of the battle. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur were on the hilltop. And as long as Moses kept his hands upraised, Israel won. But when he started getting tired, it started wearing him down. You can hold your hands up just so long. And then he finally, they would droop. And as soon as his hands began to droop, they started losing the battle. What a picture. As long as you're praising the Lord, you're going to have victory. As long as those hands are up and you're praising the Lord, you're going to have victory. But when the hands began to droop, then they began to lose. So, so what happened? They didn't want Amalek to win. They wanted to win the battle. There was only one solution. Moses sat down on a stone and his two companions stayed up, sterizo, stayed up his hands. What a powerful picture. It took a prophet, Moses, a priest, Aaron, and a prince, Hur, all anointed ministers to guarantee Israel's victory. Now, my Jesus is all of those wrapped up in one. Watch this. Catch the spiritual application here. Uh, Jesus as prophet, as priest, and as king now sits in the seat of power on high, our advocate with the Father himself. You know what he's doing every day? He's holding your hands up. 
Every day he's holding your hands up. You start to get weak. Some of you, listen, what you went through lately, you ought to be home and done for. What are you doing in church tonight praising God like you are? I'll tell you what happened. The priest, Jesus Christ, the prophet, Jesus Christ, held your hands up, breathed life into you, and here you are tonight praising God. We really are energizer bunnies. We keep going. Why? Because the power of the Holy Ghost living inside of us. He essentially, Jesus does, he holds up our hands when they grow tired. He gives us the victory every time. It is God who always makes us triumph. Always, not sometimes, always makes us triumph in Jesus Christ. Amen. And what is the victory? Even our faith. So folks, whatever you're going through, you have one inside of you who has promised, I'm going to hold your hands up. You're going to keep on worshiping me. You're not going down. You're going through. It's not over with. The book is not finished. God's still writing pages in your life. You're going to come through the valley to the other side. And when you get to the other side, you're going to have a testimony for people who are in a valley. God has not walked out, not left you, not forsaken you, not turned his back on you. He's going to hold you up. I'm about to preach and quit teaching. But I want you to understand, we have the greatest winner of all time living inside of us. He overcame death, overcame hell, overcame the grave. Now, perhaps one reason the Thessalonians fared so well in the face of difficulty is that Paul had told them what they were going to go through. Look at this, verses 3 and 4, that no one should be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Did you catch that? That means sometimes no matter what you name or claim or blab or grab, you can name it, claim it all day long. But he said right here, sometimes you're appointed to experience some afflictions. And I'd be lying if I told you otherwise. The Bible never, never promised that we wouldn't go through tough times. Matter of fact, the word that he gave to the Thessalonians is a word for the church universal for all time. You yourselves know that we are appointed to this, to share in the sufferings of Christ. For in fact, we told you, Paul goes on to say before, when, when we were with you, that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. He had told them before he left, now I'm being honest with you, shooting straight with you, Thessalonians, you're going to experience tribulation because of your faith. You're going to be persecuted some. Devil's going to attack you. You're going to have some battle scars. We're on a battleground. We're not in a playground. We're on a battleground. And there is a ferocious spiritual fight going on right now. And, if, and we're all in it, like it or not. You were drafted the minute you got saved. First we had the place, and then the plan. Timothy, Timothy establishing them, and now we're given the plea. Here's what he says to them. It's a plea that no man would be moved. 
The Greek word for moved is syno, which means to wag the tail. Isn't that interesting? To wag the tail, to fawn, or to flatter. What is he saying there? Here's what he's saying. He's saying the idea is that nobody should be deceived or deluded in the middle of going through a tough time, in the middle of persecution, in the middle of some tough times in your walk with God, by a person who comes along with tail-wagging suggestions, like a, like a dog that's being nice to you, that's wagging the tail, that's greeting you, and, and hey, hey, good to see you. Guess what? This whole Christian thing is a bunch of bunk. Let it go. Wag, 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 wag. Posing as a well-wisher when, in fact, they're seeking to move you away from Christ. See, Paul had a concern. His concern was while they were going through this that the Judaizers or some other type person would move in on them, wagging the tail, acting like a friend, and say, you've really bought into a bad deal. You need to leave this Christianity thing. Get out of church. Quit being so fanatical. Quit praying so much. Come on, don't, don't live in that Bible. You've really gone over the deep end. Mellow out, balance out, shallow out. Wag, 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 wag. I'm your friend. He said, watch out for those people because though they're acting friendly, they're not your friend. They're not your friend. They want you to leave your faith. Come on back to the bars. Come on back to the parties. Come on back. Look at, look at what you're going through since you got saved. You got religion. Come on back. Wag, 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 wag. You say, you know what? I know in whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. Away from me. You're not my friend. Even Jesus looked at Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. For you savor the things that be of the world and not the things that be of God. Now. In the New Testament times, suffering and persecution were taken for granted. It was part of the price of being a Christian. You just knew. If I commit to Christ, I'm going to suffer. I've seen what happens to the other people, and I know I'll go through it too. Okay? For 300 years, here's the facts. Beginning with the evil emperor Nero and ending with Diocletian, the Roman emperor, the church went through a continuing baptism of blood and fire. It was grim. It was difficult. It was red hot. It was bloody. Sometimes it was absolutely unimaginable what they went through for their faith. They gave their lives, their jobs, their reputations, their families. Torn from parents, torn from spouses, torn from children. They went through all kinds of things. Paul's intent was this. That though they suffered, their faith would not be moved, shaken, disturbed, or worn down. Church, hear me tonight. If you had told me 30 years ago when I was preaching as a much younger man, if you had told me America would be where it is today, I would never have believed you. I would have said, you, you have eaten too much pizza before you went to sleep. I would have said, that's a bad dream. I don't witness to that or receive it. But I want to tell you now, tonight, persecution is increasing in this country. It's no longer popular to be a Christian. Not popular at all. As a matter of fact, if you're a Bible-believing, praying, Jesus is the only way Christian 
You're going to be persecuted in the United States of America. You know what Paul would say to us if he were here today? He would say, I don't want you to be moved. I don't want you to be shaken. I don't want you to be disturbed. And I don't want you to be worn down. Because you have one in you who's going to hold up your hands. You think this church isn't going to get heat for where we're headed? Reaching as many people as we're reaching more and more? You think we're not going to get? Oh, yeah, we are. And I hope that you will walk through it with us and not be moved and go find a church that's not so strong on Jesus. You don't want a country club. You want a church. So I'm, I'm bracing you now. Don't be moved, shaken, disturbed, or worn down. We've got the victory through Jesus Christ. He's going to hold our hands up. Amen? We are in enemy territory. The world is a blood-soaked spiritual battleground. That's the fact. This is why Paul keeps emphasizing the second coming of Christ over and over again to the Thessalonians. It's the believer's sure and certain hope. It's a stabilizing truth. Soon and very soon we're going to see the king. Praise God. We've seen the place. We've seen the plan. We've seen the plea. And now Paul exposes the plot. In verse 5, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, wondering at how you were doing, I sent to know your faith. I sent Timothy to find out about it. Lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Wow. You know what he's saying here? He said this great apostle was having some anxiety about these people. Now, it was one thing for Paul to show them the scars on his old body, because he had them, and to shoot straight with them from the start, and how he had been stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked and all of that. But he wanted to know how they were going to do when it happened to them. When it happened to them. That was Paul's concern. I have that concern for the church in America. I see churches right now caving in all over the country to political correctness, to the pressure of the culture, wanting to be liked by people who are never going to like you, worrying about what the world thinks instead of the Lord. I read this week, if you're a friend of the world, you're the enemy of God. I'm telling you, our, the teaching of the New Testament is radical stuff. I see churches caving in. And to say, well, we won't preach about sin. We won't talk about the blood. We won't talk about the one-wayness of Jesus. We won't talk about the Bible being the inerrant word of God. We don't want to look ignorant and stupid to these people or be labeled something by them. We want to be liked. As long as you're wanting to be liked by the world, you will never please God. I don't care what they think. They're not going to be there at my judgment. I care about their soul, but I don't care about their opinion. Opinions come and go. They like you one day, stab you in the back the next day. It's all fickle. It changes with the weather. I do care about what he thinks. And you know what? We need to be playing for an audience of one, not all of them. All right? And this is the way we're going to have to be thinking in these last days if we're going to influence the world for Christ and stand strong. So Paul wondered, how are you going to do that? That was his question. He could bear the suspense no more. So off you go, Timothy, back to Thessalonica, stiffen their resolve, teach the word, be their example. Paul knew that the devil is a dirty fighter. He is devoid of mercy, ruthless in his attacks, diabolical in his tricks. 
Paul wanted to be assured they had not paid the price of apostasy to gain peace with the world. How easy would it have been? Well, one historical account I found said this. At the height of Roman persecution, immunity from further harassment could be purchased just by putting a pinch of salt on the altar of a pagan god. That's all you had to do. A little pinch of salt on the altar of a pagan god. And they let you go free. But it was everything. If you did it, it was the price of a soul, the price of your faith. Y'all are quiet tonight. Somber. But this is good stuff. We need to hear this, don't we? Because this is written for the whole church, not just the Thessalonians that Paul thought. If, God forbid, the faith of the Thessalonians had collapsed, his labor in their city would indeed have been in vain. It would have been a waste of time. Had they met the fury of the adversary with a triumphant faith in their advocate, Jesus Christ? Is that what they had done? Yes. Timothy returned with that great news, and Paul was thrilled. I believe they stayed up all night long talking about what Timothy had found. Oh, man, Paul, they're praising God. They love you. They love the Word of God. They love Jesus. They haven't caved in at all. You planted a great church. I guarantee you he didn't sleep that night. He told them they were more than conquerors, Paul. The Word has stuck. They've stayed true. Verse 6, but now, Paul says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Wow. Paul was no high-powered evangelist blowing into town, preaching to great crowds, winning a bunch of souls, and then just as quickly leaving like a movie star. Uh Uh-uh. He loved people. He stuck around. He smelled like sheep. Any pastor worth their salt, any minister, ought to smell like sheep. That means you've been around them enough, they've rubbed off on you. And you've rubbed off on them. I think the day of the superstar minister is over. It's over. There's no superstars or super servants. No superstars. There's only one star, star of David, Jesus Christ, the bright and morning star. That's it. Everybody else is equal at the foot of the cross. So... Paul loved people. He was eager to meet those people that had responded to the gospel. He loved to visit their homes, meet their relatives, instruct them in the first steps in the Christian faith. He loved it. Verse 7, he says, Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. While the Thessalonians had been going through it, through their own persecution, so had Paul. This guy never stopped. His deep concern for them was only one part of the burden he bore. What was the other part? By the time Timothy arrived with the good news about the Thessalonians' faith, Paul had already launched his gospel crusade in nearby Corinth. Before he could even find out how they were doing, he was going to another city to start another crusade and win more souls. He was unbelievable. He writes that he arrived in that city in, quote, weakness and much fear and trembling, kicked out of Thessalonica, 
sat in Athens alone waiting to hear about their faith, but then decided, I'm going to Corinth and I'm going to preach there too. I'm going to win a bunch of souls and start a church in Corinth. He had been mauled in Philippi, mocked at Athens, chased out of Thessalonica. Now in Corinth, the Jews had thrown him out of the synagogue. He was always getting kicked out of places. When was the last time you or me were kicked out of some place because of Jesus? He was always getting kicked out. Attempts against him had finally broken out in insurrection, and Paul was dragged before the authorities. So the good news about the Thessalonians was a welcome encouragement indeed. It was a bright spot in a very rough lifestyle. Now next, Paul summarized the triumph of the Thessalonians' faith. First, he assures them that his life is linked with theirs. Catch that. Verse 8, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Wow. We live if you're making it. If you're not making it, it profoundly affects me. I can think of people I feel that way about, some more than others. It'd be good to sit back and do a little assessment of yourself. Who, who, uh, whose faith, that if they're not making it well, affects me profoundly? Because I'm linked to them. Your children, your spouse, in-laws. Paul said, the whole church, we're linked to you. That's how much we care. Paul's not questioning whether their faith is strong by using the word if. He's simply stating that his peace of mind depended on their bold stand for Christ. He said, man, we're in this together. We're a team. This is not a solo trip. I'm, I, I'm with you and you're with me. If you make it, I make it. If I make it, you make it. I feel that way about you, Turning Point, and I hope you feel that way about me. We're making it together. If you make it, I make it. If I make it, you make it. If Jeff makes it, I make it. If I make it, Jeff makes it. We're in this together. We're co-laborers in the ministry of Christ. Churches and evangelists could take a page out of Paul's notebook on the care and follow-up of converts. To Paul, they were not just stats to be reported triumphantly in the next support letter. Paul's converts were a vital part of his life. Paul goes on to show how he lived for them. Verse 10 and 9, verse 9 and 10. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God? Night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and, and perfect what is lacking in your faith night and day. How many people who you don't see all the time, would you pray night and day for the opportunity to see? Paul said night and day and day and night. I'm praying that God will make a way for me to personally see you again because we're linked. I love you in Christ. You're my children in the faith. If you make it, I make it. If I make it, you make it. If Paul said that he prayed for them night and day, he meant it. He was not evangelistically speaking. He praised God for the wonder of his work in their hearts. And he prayed continuously for a future reunion. Even in light of the good report Timothy had brought, Paul did not relax his disciplined prayer life on their account, even though he knew they were doing well, he still didn't let up in his praying for them. 
That's why I tell you all the time. I don't worship Paul. Paul was a servant of Christ, but I believe he's the best Christian, the greatest Christian that has ever lived is this man here. He followed Jesus really close. He said, I know that there's still some flaws in your faith, but I love you anyway. And I want to come and see you because I want to perfect what is lacking in your faith. Well, what was lacking in their faith? Well, there was a margin of error that existed in their understanding of the second coming of Christ. And also some of them did not uh, have a belief that behaved. Now, will you notice with me that even though they weren't perfect, he loved them anyway? He said, well, you're flawed, but I love you. And the reason I want to get to you is so that I can fill in the gaps in your faith. No wonder Satan fought so hard to keep Paul from these churches. Because when he got there, man, it was miracle time, anointing time, blessing time, handing out gifts time. You can only do so much by mail. Paul wanted to see them personally to deal with these things face to face. So Paul then revealed how he made decisions. And this is important for everyone here tonight. Verse 11. Let's look at how he made a decision. May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to come to you. Catch this. Paul never allowed himself to be ruled by his intellect, by his emotions, or by his own will. He made decisions on a deeper level. He was ruled by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that's how he made decisions. Never make a major decision in life when you're frustrated, discouraged, or tired. Never make a major decision until you have gotten the mind of Christ. Because that's what the apostle did. I am praying that God himself makes a way. And I'm not going to try to finagle something. I'm waiting for the one who opens doors that no man shuts to open a door for me to get to you. And when he opens the door by the Holy Ghost, I'm coming. But until then, I'm waiting on him. The word direct here that he uses reveals that Paul wanted his return to Thessalonica to be directed by the overruling providence of God without detours and without deviations. I want to tell you, church, God guides us, he directs us, he leads us, but it takes wisdom. It takes knowing the Holy Spirit, it takes knowing the Word, it takes recognizing circumstances, it takes waiting for several things to line up before you go. But God will send you, he'll open a door. I believe his three major guideposts for guidance are these, the Word, is what you're about to do or you're thinking about doing clearly in the Word? Does the Word amen it? Two, do you have the peace of God about what you're praying about? Is the peace of God on you about this? Because the Bible promises the peace of God is our guide. When God takes his peace away, you better pull the reins back and stop in your tracks. When the peace lifts, God is telling you through the Holy Spirit, you need to hang on and stop and wait for things to clarify, for a direction to become very clear, or he's saying, don't do that at all. But when you lose the peace, is it in the word? Does the peace of God follow me in this decision? And are the circumstances, that third, that third guidepost, are they opening up for me? 
Is there a door that is clearly opened? I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to do something and God shut the door. And I've learned that the Lord that shuts the door is just as precious as the Lord who opens the door. That, that, that His mercy, His guidance is every much as involved in closing a door as it is opening a door. And have you ever gotten to a place in your life where you look back at some doors that God shut and said, oh, thank God He shut that door. Because I would have gone right through that door. The Word has to agree with it. The Spirit has to agree with it. The circumstances have to agree with it. And I believe in also getting counsel from others if it's a major decision. And let that agree with it. And then walk through. The Bible says that God makes straight paths, not crooked, straight paths for our feet. Straight paths. As it turned out, Paul was able to go there quite naturally. Look how it happened. At the end of his third missionary journey, he was driven out of Ephesus, once again, kicked out of a place. And that's how he ended up going and seeing the Thessalonians again. God providentially and sovereignly took him there. So he leaves the Thessalonians some good advice as they await his return to them. Here's what he says. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. I'm coming to you, and when I do, I'm going to perfect your faith. Until then, let me tell you what you do. Learn to love each other. Make that your project. Just love each other. I'm going to get to you, and I'm going to teach you about the second coming of Christ. I'm going to clarify some things for you. But until then, learn to love each other because we love you. Agape love, more agape love, abounding agape love, abounding agape love towards all believers. That's exactly what Paul was telling them to do. And for some reason, it won't go on, guys. It's stuck. There we go. Verse 13. May he strengthen. Well, I'm going to go back because I'll bet you it missed something. Finally, Paul comes back to the theme of the letter. And we're going to close with this. The second coming of Christ. Here he's coming to the stabilizing truth. Verse 13 says, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father at what, everyone? Read it with me. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his holy ones. What I'm going to do at the end of First Thessalonians, there's five chapters. What I'm going to do at the end, I'm going to take a whole night to share everything that can possibly be shared and taught clearly on the rapture and the second coming. I'm going to teach you everything that the Bible has to say about it. I'm going to put a whole night into it because he mentions it in every chapter. And if I paused in every chapter, it would take up more time than I want to take up. So I'm going to take the last night and the whole evening, we're going to look at what's the rapture? What's the second coming? What's the difference? What are we going to be doing while the world is going through the tribulation? Where are we going to be? What are we going to be experiencing? What does he mean when the Lord comes back with all of his holy ones? Does that mean angels? Does that mean us? What is he talking about? I'm going to go over all of that at the end of this series. But just notice now, he says, I want you to stay blameless and holy. And how do you stay blameless and holy? You got your eye peeled on the, he could come back at any moment. And if you're living that way, John said, it'll keep you pure because you're expecting that any time Jesus could return. The word for coming is parousia, which refers to the Lord's coming in the air. The Lord is going to descend the stairways of the sky.
He enters our planet. He shouts. And the dead in Christ come out of their graves. The living saints ascend with them toward the sky. We may be there, we may not. But it would be neat to be there, wouldn't it? Uh, come on. And all of a sudden, hey, arise! Just like he spoke to Lazarus. And before you know it, boom, you're there. Boom, you're looking at him. In the clouds. And there's grandpa, and there's grandma, and there's a child you may have lost, or somebody else you may have lost. There they are. And there you are seeing them again in the clouds with the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. There it is. We meet in the clouds of heaven. While some unfulfilled prophecy awaits the rapture of the church, nothing need be fulfilled for the rapture itself to happen. Nothing. One commentator writes these words, and we'll close with this. Nothing stands between us and the summons of God. No premonitions, no warnings, no signals, no prophecies. Paul's message then, keep your hearts clean, live holy in the presence of God. The Lord could come at any moment. Can we stand up together? Isn't that good stuff? Give the Lord a hand tonight. Amen. I'm so thankful for the powerful Word of God. Let's just pray. Father, we thank You that You've called us to live a holy life, a blameless life, a life walking with You. And Lord, we keep our eye peeled on the horizon knowing that at any moment that trumpet could blow and we would be with You instantly in a moment. Lord, thank you for helping us to keep that in mind and for encouraging us with this strengthening truth, stabilizing truth of the imminent return of Jesus. Amen. Let's just sing one stanza or two of worship before we go tonight. Thank you, Lord God. Let the 